Hi, welcome to Olim to the Scene, where we talk to all your favorite Olim about living in Israel, their Aliyah story, politics, and more. I'm your host, Matan Goldman, and it's great to have you here. Let's begin. Welcome back to Olim to the Scene. I am here with my guest, Joseph Rubenstein. That's right. How are you? Hi, I'm good. All right, so let's get right into it. What are your hopes, your dreams, your ambitions? Where are you from? I guess we can start with, uh, where are you from? So uh, I'm originally from uh, West Hartford, Connecticut, and okay. then uh, I moved when I was eight years old to Silver Spring, Maryland, right. which was uh, fantastic. Good community. Uh, fantastic community. Uh, love it. It's honestly one of one of the best places uh, out there, I think, in, in America right now for, for being a Jew. Uh, shout out to Ben Yehuda Pizza. Okay. Love, love that. Might uh, have to argue about Philadelphia, but we can discuss that after. Philly, Philly's a place, <laughs> you know. I actually, uh, I'm a hockey fan, so uh, the Flyers are like one of the one of my team's rivals. So oh, fun. And uh, you know, sports sports definitely is a big dividing line with anybody from Philadelphia. So I will uh, make sure not to step on your toes. So you lived in uh, Silver Spring. I assume you went to the Modern Orthodox High School. What what after? Did you go do a year in Israel? I did do a year in Israel. Uh, Yeshiva Nativ Arye. Mm-hmm. Definitely an interesting experience. I learned quite a bit about myself, about the world around me. I, I had I had an experience in which we all chanted Shana Bet. Okay. I, I did not do Shana Bet though. All right, um, man of his word. Yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> um, so uh, then after yeshiva, uh, well, I mean, actually, first of all, in yeshiva, I was right next to the kotel, you know, yeah. and that was incredible, just yeah. unbelievable. That was the best part of it, just being like so close to that and, you know, having the spiritual experiences that I could have there. Right. But then after that, I kind of went from uh, from one extreme to the other. I went to University of Maryland. Yeah. You know, so it has a reputation as a party school, but for the modern Orthodox community, right. that by and large is like a little bit overblown, I think. Jewish party school, right? Yeah. I mean, like people do their parties and stuff, but it was by and large just a fantastic, yeah. you know, fantastic experience. And there's tons of learning, has tons of resources. There's, uh, you know, a fantastic Chabad there. There's a fantastic Hillel. Uh, what's interesting about the University of Maryland Jewish scene is that actually the Chabad and Hillel work very closely together. Right. So in usually in secular campuses, they are sort of, you know, not necessarily at arms, but they're definitely not as close partners as they are. Right in Maryland. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that the Hillel actually was a very welcoming place towards the Orthodox community. Very interesting. What What did you major in Maryland? What was your major? Uh, I studied marketing, uh, supply chain management, and also uh, entrepreneurship. Was there a reason for that? Just because it's a very practical degree or? So marketing, I always wanted to do like, you know, ads and I really like the creative aspect of it. Yeah. Um, but then what happened was in, in Maryland, a lot of people double, double major. Yeah. In fact, that's actually what most people in the business school do. So I was looking into, you know, how I could double major, what courses I could take. And it turns out that for whatever strange reason, supply chain management and marketing have a lot of classes in common. Yeah. And allowed me to basically double major in them. And what was interesting was I started taking these supply chain management classes. And I discovered that supply chain management actually is really, really interesting. Yeah. I think uh, a lot of people were exposed to the importance of supply chains recently in COVID and the war in Russia. A lot of different hiccups that affected our life. And also uh, exposed people to the complexity of the supply chains. So you did this major. And then what? And then you made Aliyah. Then you were doing something else after or... Yeah, so I completed my degree, and then I made Aliyah. Uh, I served in the IDF for three years in the Nacha Brigade. Okay. It was really, uh, really incredible experience. I actually, I learned so, so, so much about about myself, I think. Actually, even more so than, you know, 
pretty much any experience before that, even, you know, yeshiva. Did you always want to go to the army? Then why did, why did you go to American college and not just go straight from yeshiva? So, yeah, I definitely did things a little bit backwards. The reason is because, you know, being from Maryland, so pretty much everybody from my class and from, uh, you know, sort of my friend circle, they went to University of Maryland. Also, my older brothers both went to University of Maryland. So there was a fair amount of kind of like, I wouldn't say pressure, but it definitely was that was the expected path. And I think at some point in Maryland, I realized really how much I wanted to, you know, serve an IDF. And and that was also part of the process. There was always kind of in the back of my mind, you know, since since I was even like a kid that I wanted to do that. But it definitely became more pronounced, uh, you know, in, in university. I started doing like Zionist activities, like things like that. And it just it just became kind of something that was necessary for me. Okay. And then another question, a lot of people when they draft, a lot of Americans do the Machal program, do a year and a half, you get a lot of benefits, you get to integrate into Israeli society, and then you don't need to do the extra year and a half. Why did you decide to do full service? Well, first and foremost, part of it was because I was doing a program called Garin Sabar. Okay. Garin Sabar basically is they take you to a kibbutz, you live there for, you know, a few months, you get integrated into, you know, Israeli society that way. Yeah. And then you draft like almost immediately. And so they require two years. And then basically I wanted to serve in a particular unit in the, the Gatsar. Oh, you were in the Sayer? Mm-hmm. Okay. I was in Palkhan. Yeah. Um, Which is the explosives. It's uh, the explosives, exactly. Yeah. yeah, we got to blow things up. I was in uh, Handasa Kravit. So yeah, with, guys, uh, with Jacob. With Jacob, your employee. So you guys were on my base. Co-founder. Co-founder. Um, <laughs> definitely, you know, partner. He's, he's awesome. But anyways, so basically... Yeah, Palhan was was really, really cool. I lived out my dreams as, you know, from a seven-year-old, like the seven-year-old dreams, right. like blowing things up. I got to fire all sorts of missiles, got to, you know, do all the stuff that, you know, I, I don't think most people get a chance to do. Yeah. And it was, it was what an, I mean, what an experience. It was wild. And like, I, I feel like you got to do that kind of stuff too, also, to an extent. Yeah. Yeah. Although it was limited in some sense. Okay. So you did your army service. Then what? Then uh, you're just bumming around. You're taking some time off, going on a teal, or well, okay. So after that, I uh, I worked at Machach Baaretz. Yeah. I met my wife there. Okay. Fantastic stuff. You were in Madrid there. I was in Madrid. Okay. Yeah. It was it was you know a, a great experience as well. Uh, interesting summer. Did you have a good bus? I know a lot of Madrid experiences depend on the kids and their bus. Yeah. Okay. Fine, I won't make you say anything. No, I, no, I mean, listen, it was, it was, it was a great summer. I, the kids, the kids were great. You know, I think it was a little bit challenging, but that's that's where the most interesting things happen. Right. And honestly, I can't say that I had any issues with the, the campers. They were, you know, they're really really fun people. Yeah. Um, just an interesting summer by, by and large. But in any case, uh, so you know, completed the summer, and then I started looking for work. I ended up in a PR agency. Okay. Uh, finding work in Israel, by the way, is very challenging. Yeah. You know, it's a lot of protects you. A lot of, yeah, it is. Um, I mean, it, it's very, like, you know, people talk about having degrees and how that's helpful. I really think it's a racket to an right. extent. Because, like, I came out with a degree from a really well-known university. I mean, admittedly, there's, like, sort of a cultural shift going on. Like, who in Israel knows what University of Maryland is? Right. Uh, but even so, it really didn't help me that much. Right. Applied to tons of jobs. A lot of... The degree in Israel by itself isn't worth a lot. Most Israelis are working during their degree to get that experience. Like, I'm working for the Center for Statistics, so I'll come out with the degree and the two years of work experience. Absolutely. the mo- I think the model might be a bit different. Yeah. But in any case, so, you know, found this job with uh, with this great guy named Laser Cohen. They actually just rebranded. They're called Concrete Media yeah. now, 
great PR firm. Uh, you know, it's it's a big thing on the Jerusalem scene. Maybe maybe that'll be one of your next uh, interview guests. Maybe we'll see. Um, but in any Always case, open for recommendations. Definitely would suggest them. Uh, had a really great experience there, and I basically interacted with like tons and tons of CEOs and like CMOs and people like really in charge. PR is really interesting, yeah, because you get to interact with people that are really really high up. Who was a PR for firms, politicians, for high tech firms? Oh, high tech firms. Okay, yeah. So like uh, we had a couple really cool companies. One was called Build Dots. Yeah, they basically do like uh, AI technology where you put like these like hard hats on for like buildings, okay, uh, like for you know construction sites. And then they have on them cameras, and then they basically mark up all the different parts that you haven't, like, set up yet or things like that. And they have, like, basically a 3D visualization in which you can check out, you know, sort of what what was done. And what does PR firm entail? It means you run their social media or, like... It's basically, like, you're trying to get them uh, organic content. It's funny that they use the word organic because there's a lot of sort of behind-the-scenes non-organic stuff happening. But basically, the idea is you're trying to get them, like, news articles. That's that's more or less the sense of news articles, podcasts, like, that's more or less the idea. And, uh, I mean, it's very useful for companies. Like, just as a result of that, you know, we got them sales, uh, build out specifically. Uh, we had some success there. And it's it's pretty interesting. I definitely suggest it if, if you don't know what to do and you're thinking about high tech in general because it's a way to meet a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds. It's like a consulting job. Sort of, yeah. Yeah, and in the sense that you're meeting lots of people and you're touching lots of fields with that. Yeah. So after that, then what? Uh, after that, uh, basically one uh, one of my friends and I, we decided that we wanted to embark on sort of a startup journey. Right. There were some, you know, I would say like it was a little bit crisscrossy in terms of how we addressed it initially. Right. But ultimately the result was uh, I got, you know, uh, fantastic co-founders, including Jacob Namro, Noah Barshane, uh, Devere, who recently uh, has has moved on, but we right. still love him dearly. <laughs> um, and we have these, you know, we basically came together and we said there's this problem. We found a problem. Yeah. That's a big problem right. uh, for independent retailers yeah. uh, and their suppliers, which is basically that uh, it's really, really hard to manage their supply chain yeah. with the tools that they have today. Uh, so what do they do today, basically, for their uh, what's called procure-to-pay process? Uh, what they do is they basically make phone calls to order. They write down, you know, their amounts on pen and paper. Uh, they, you know, receive invoices that are paper, and then they have to type them into whatever system they're using, and it takes hours. Right. Basically, everything they're doing is very manual. Yeah. And so we said, well, we can fix that. We have, you know, we can build technology that basically, uh, I would say, automates the supply chain, and then ultimately will allow them to communicate more effectively with their suppliers. Right. And uh, so we set out to do that, um, and actually we're now at a point in which we are starting to have customer traction, right. which is fantastic. Uh, so, people paying us money, which is also fantastic. So before before we get into like the exact details of supply and where it is now, let, let's let's go back to the beginning for a second. The the startup. Sure. How do you start a startup? What what are the processes like registering for a business, finding the the people like? So. A startup, it's, it's really interesting. There's not really one way, per se, to run a, or start a startup. Yeah. There are a bunch of different paths and a bunch of different ways that people can do it. There's probably, like, you know, more suggested ways. Right. Uh, so, like, I think that spending time in ideation, ideation is where you come up with the idea and refining the idea. It doesn't necessarily make sense to do something very active at that stage, yeah. which is kind of the opposite of what we did. We immediately hired developers and right. ultimately ended up being a waste of money. Okay. Why, Basi- was it, why was it a waste of money? 
Well, first of all, the product that we were working on was slightly different. Right. I guess nothing's really a waste because everything like led us to the direction that we were going. But I guess I would say it this way. If I were to do it again, probably what I would do is I would come with an idea, a very clear idea. I would start speaking to as many people as I possibly could, you know, within the industry, like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of interviews, trying to understand, well, what's this problem? What should this look like? How would the solution look like? If I were to, you know, build a product set, what would it, you know, what would it be addressing? Do that. Then after that, I would, you know, probably try to get into what's called an accelerator. Yeah. Uh, so we're actually sitting inside of one of the accelerators that we were a part of right now cool. called A to B. Okay. Accelerators basically give you sort of structure Yeah. to like help basically build your business. How does one get into an accelerator? You send a, an application? Yeah. You have like, you have an application, you go over, you have, you talk about your business idea, you show any traction that you have. We were, we were kind of mature, actually, for a lot of the accelerators that we were a part of. Right. Because we were post sort of the ideation stage. We already we, had an idea. We already had an idea. Yeah. We already were building it. We already had, you know, some sort of product traction. Um, and so basically you get into one of these accelerators. They give you the structure that you need. They give you the office space you need. They give you resources for lawyers. They give you everything that you need. Uh, after the accelerator, then you're basically just, you know, trying to a- attack your customer segment. Is there also funding or it's just the resources? So it depends on the accelerator. Mm-hmm. One of the big focuses is funding, but I, I don't really believe in that, in the whole concept of, you know, investment and funding and sort of, I, I think that there's situations in which it makes sense, yeah. but it is very, very, very overblown because it is, it's like, it's viewed as the sexy part of startups is like going to get investment. But right. the truth is that for a lot of startups, it is a hundred percent the wrong thing to focus on. Why? Well, because first of all, there there is a bit of a chicken and the egg thing. Um, in order to get funding, you have to basically prove to the investors that you have traction. Right. Okay, well, if all day you're spending looking for funding, so then you're never going to have time to focus on the traction. Yeah. And actually, to that point, there was uh, somebody, I, I live in Beersheba now, okay. so there's somebody that is you know part of the community, the Orthodox community there. He basically runs his own startup uh, very successfully. And he was saying that basically when he was speaking to his investors, all he really needed to do was show them his Stripe account. Stripe is like a payment processor um, because they had enough business and it justified getting an investment. Yeah. Uh, Investors want to invest in viable businesses that are succeeding. Right. Well, actually, like until now in the tech boom, there was a lot of issues of people investing in businesses without necessarily the traction, without necessarily like an idea that was sustainable. And now with the current climate rise in interest rates, that uh, investment is now more expensive and people can't just get free money. What you're saying, sensible uh, startuping is definitely seems to be the way to go to have a, an actual product, actual traction before you find that funding. Yeah, before or, you know, if you are finding the funding at all. Like, right. I, think, I think that that's one route that's very, very, uh, you know, there are the positives of it. So if you're trying, like the theory is basically, if you want to capture a market segment, you have to explode a business as quickly as possible. Yeah. That's true. However, everything comes down to dollars and cents, right? You want to, you as the startup founder, want to make as much money as possible. That's your objective right. through the startup, as well as doing good and, you know, accompli- and you know fixing the community and things like that. But, but generally, the goal is you're trying to make as much money as possible. Well, if you have investors, so what happens is it's not that you just have one investor, or one round of investors, usually as a, as a technology startup, you actually have a whole series of investors. You have your, you know, pre-seed, seed, series A, series B, series C, series D. What that means is that your company is getting diluted and diluted and diluted. Because the investors take shares. Exactly. Okay. So you might end up with, by the end of everything, 1% of your company. Yeah. Okay, your company might be valued at a billion dollars, but 1% of a billion is, you know, relatively not that much. Right. 
relative to, let's say, you run a $60 million company with no investors, well, that's actually you know a fair amount of money as well. Right. So Haven't done the math, but I think you'd probably be better at that. <laughs> it's more. So if you push off the investing while you have like more of the company, more of the traction, more of the profits, you can end up uh, gaining in the long run. So I want to talk briefly about assembling the team and how you chose people to start the startup, right? Obviously, you have great people, but you always run the risk that you end up having people who might not be as good, who might be a drag on the company, and now they own like large parts. So how, who are you looking for when you were starting the team? And like, what were, they, what were the roles that they were supposed to be doing? So I didn't do things necessarily by the book, yeah. and it ended up working out for me, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't necessarily suggest it for everybody. Yeah. I basically found you know, a couple friends yeah. uh, that were interested about the idea and that I thought were you know, people that were going to work hard. And then, you know, we came together. It, it turned out sort of after the fact uh, that, you know, the people that I had were actually the right people. Yeah. But it doesn't necessarily always turn out that way. Right. So I think that if I were to suggest to anybody that's thinking of starting any sort of venture, what I would say is you want to do, basically, you want to figure out your skill set. And then you want people that are very complementary to those skills. And you probably want people that are in the industry for a long time. And what is your skill set? My skill set, I come in with sort of like the marketing background. I understand supply chain management. I get I get all of that. You know, I get sort of generally business and how that works and like making business deals and making calls and things like that. Right. You know, sort of a sales, more of kind of a sales role. Yeah. We have also on deck Noah Noah Varshane, who's our tech guy. Yeah. That's something, by the way, that's super important is you, if you're going to build a technology startup, you need to have a CTO, unless you are the CTO. Like you need somebody that can, that can build it. technology officer. Yeah. You need somebody that can build it that's in-house. Offshoring initially is just impossible. Yeah. Offshoring or outsourcing or whatever, you need to have somebody in-house that is in- responsible for the technology. And you can I build mean, a good base. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure there are exceptions to that rule. Right. I'm sure that there are people that have done it successfully that said, no, I you know, went to this outsourcing agency. But I would, I would gander that they are few and far between. But I think one of the problems with outsourcing is they're building what you ask for, but they're not necessarily building a product that might be useful to expand upon later or like to understand. Exactly. Right. So now let's talk about the actual startup itself. So you have supply. We talked about how it's a supply chain management helping uh, retailers. Um, how did and we discussed the, the issue that people are doing a lot of their work manually. So how did you come across this problem and how did you think of the solution? Well, we came across it basically because our co-founder, uh, Tvir, so he was working at an in- independent retailer. He was like managing it. And so he basically came to us and was like, you know, it's really, really crazy the way that we operate today. We're making phone calls to suppliers. We're getting, you know, all sorts of mistakes are happening. There's a lot of Excel, like manual data entry. And the result of that, so really what ends up happening as a result of the manual processes, A, is tons of lost time, like untold amount of time that are spent inputting information into their, either into their POS system or inputting information into Excel spreadsheets that they're sending to suppliers. It's really, really crazy if you were to get down into the details of it, like what they're doing. And you're like, a response I've heard, probably the most common response I've heard to my startup is, wait, people aren't doing this already? Yeah. The answer is no. Well, the the big companies are, right? Like Target, Walmart, I'm sure they have. So sort of. Yeah. In certain ways. Like they have big enough operations that they, through sort of brute force, can overcome a lot of the problems that a smaller business couldn't. Like, they might still be doing the manual data entry aspect of things, but that doesn't really matter. It That's just, like a blip on their, you know, another income statement people. or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so they can they basically can handle all of these problems in a way that will be 
non-problematic for them. But for a smaller retailer, there's this concept that was coined in 1981 by the Harvard Business Review called resource poverty. And basically what they were talking about was that a small business is not a smaller version of a big business. A small business comes with a lot of baggage, which is resource poverty. The idea that you are sort of by the, the dearth of resources that you have at hand, you are actually significantly more constrained right. than your bigger counterparts. So it's not just your dollar actually runs for a lot less than somebody who's bigger, Yeah, which means that you have to do a lot more with a lot less. Right. And what we wanted to do was kind of attack that problem and give people the ability to manage their lives more effectively. You're giving them a good resource. Okay, so going back... How did you find the problem? I think we got a little off track. Did you ask a bunch of stores? Did you? So initially, Dvira was working at this retailer. Yeah. He was the one that kind of piqued us into that problem. Okay. And then ultimately what we did is we started speaking to, we, we interviewed like a hundred retailers yeah. to see if this is a consistent problem that's happening, you know, across the U.S. as well as Israel. And lo and behold, it is. Okay. And I'd like to ask because, right, in a startup, there's two sides. There's the business side. You get to make money, you get to have like an idea, you get to do all the marketing. And then there's the actual product itself, which is supply chain management. Are you, do you find, are you passionate about the product itself, the supply chain management? Or are you more about the overall business structure? So I actually, I mean, both, well, both. The answer yeah. is both. Um, I'm actually really passionate about the product. Right. And the, the reason is, is it's pretty philosophical in nature. I see, I see small business as the key to a healthy society. Okay. If you have healthy small businesses, that means that wealth is distributed more evenly. It means that opportunity is distributed more evenly. It means that people have ultimately more independence. It means that people are more self-reliant. It means a whole bunch of things that are really, really important for a healthy, happy society. And the problem is that as societies kind of grow, what ends up happening is that there ends up being a lot of consolidation. Yeah. So you have like lots of companies that are you know buying each other, and then you end up having, like let's say, a few players. Right. And the few players is not a good thing for a happy, healthy society. Why? Because they can do price manipulation. I mean, things that we are witnessing in Israel. Right. You only have a few players in grocery, and as a result, the cost of living is really, really high. Right. Ultimately, there isn't really another reason why it should be so high. I mean, if you think about it from a supply chain perspective, you have all like all the vegetables yeah. can come from, you know, basically in Israel. You can buy them dirt cheap. So why is everything so expensive? It's because you have like four players in the market there's a fair amount of, you know, uh, like, I don't think that they're necessarily sitting in a boardroom going, hmm, how are we going to change the prices? But I do think that they're paying attention to how everybody else is pricing and then adjusting in that same way. Yeah, they're profiting. But Israel also just doesn't have enough land to have that many vegetable suppliers, right? They want to add in more through importing. But Israel also has a vested interest in keeping its own agriculture because if we get in a war, Israel wants to be able to sustain its own country. Oh, absolutely. No, I'm sure there are reasons definitely that are contributing factors. Yeah. But I still would say that the ultimate underlying reason is just a sim- simple lack of competition. Yeah, no, competition definitely um, contributes. That's definitely the main reason. There's just reasons why there isn't more competition in the vegetable market in Israel. They're trying to introduce right now uh, Carefor. I don't know if you heard of that. What is it? It's a grocery chain from, like, I think it's France. Yeah. And uh, the, there's hope that that will, you know, start in- yeah. introducing basically more competitiveness in the market. Right. You can introduce competitiveness through imports. There's just vested, there's interest against imports also, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, it's interesting. There's a lot of interesting. The problem <laughs> yeah. is, the problem is sorting through legitimacy and interesting. Right. It's hard. Um, 
What I would say, though, is that it should be the vested interest of, you know, whatever Israeli government that's in power to say, okay, we're going to try to make as much competition as possible. Yeah. Because ultimately, if you have a healthy healthy consumer base, so then you have more healthy business, too. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, supply. Where is it right now? Where do you want it to go? And fortunate statistic, most startups ultimately fail. So, what are you doing to try to prevent that? Well, I'd say that... First of all, I'm I'm not really a fan of the what are we doing to try to prevent that. We're yeah. trying to make our business succeed. Right. It's much more sort of the positive rather than the negative. You're not, you're not thinking about the statistics. We're just working. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I think, A, we passed a lot of milestones that most startups don't pass. Like which, what? Number one is that we have customers. Yeah. That's the biggest one. That's right. the most important one. You have people paying us for whatever we're selling. How many customers and, like, who are the customers, if you can say? I'd rather not say. All right, fine. Um, but... You know, things are good. Baruch okay. Hashem. Baruch right. Hashem, things are things are going correctly. Um, we're building out the customer base. You know, we're trying to make sure that uh, our product is, you know, moving stages. And that's been hard, actually. The hardest part of this is building a product. Right. Like, uh, I started advising this uh, ice cream company. Yeah. And in a sense, I'm very, very jealous because they have, like, an established product that they can just sell. Right. And then it becomes about dollars and cents, and then it becomes about optimizations, and, like, well, how do we cut costs? And it becomes a much easier conversation rather than, well, what product features should we include? How should we dedicate our resources? It's a lot. Technology is complicated. But thankfully, it seems like we crossed a lot of those hurdles. We have people paying us, again, right. which I think is really, really exciting. And in terms of what I'm trying to achieve, ultimately, I think that, uh, you know, kind of any outcome is a positive outcome. Yeah. Because we haven't really, we've gotten some fantastic investors, but they're by and large angel investors. Yeah. So, Which means a single guy gives you money. Exactly. Like we have the, one of the people that wrote the original textbook on supply chain wow. invested in us. We have uh, the former general that ran supply chain management for the U.S. military. Yeah. Uh, we have, uh, you know, this, this guy that's the number one like analytics expert in retail in the world who invested in us and, you know, is advising us. Sounds so we have we have a full people. fantastic group of people backing us up. But ultimately, like, because we don't have any of those big VC investors, we're actually in a very healthy space because pretty much any outcome that's a positive outcome is a really positive outcome. Right. So again, if we end up being, a, you know, a business valued at $10 million, $20 million, $30 million, well, then that means that all of the people that are involved in it, because we're a relatively small team, end up being effectively millionaires. Okay. I don't think that anybody would have a problem with that. Right. Fair. Um, on this podcast, we talked to different Olim. Another kind of sub-theme is also different communities that people live in. And you mentioned you live in Beersheba. I have yet to interview someone from Beersheba. So if you could say a couple words in the community, like why you're living there, how it is. Is there a community? A lot of people live in Karmagat these days to commute to Beersheba. So. First and foremost, I'm living there because my wife is studying at the university. That's right. generally the reason that you would find that being said, there actually is a really great, first of all, like sort of religious community. In uh, we're in Shkunat Gimel, which is right next to the uh, to Soroka, yeah, uh, to the hospital, and there's a really great religious religious community called uh, Gvanim. Okay, and so lots of people come together, and you know we do Shabbat, and they, you know, it's it's very family focused. Is it Israelis, Americans, like what's so? That's for? the interesting thing. Yeah. Like when we first got there, we were like sure it was going to be only Israelis. It's actually a really good mixture. I, I would say it's like, I don't know, maybe 40% are Olim, yeah. even 50%, which was really mind-blowing for me because the chances that a bunch of Olim are going to end up in Beersheba, you know, from my previous mindset was very low. Right. Like, I would never expect that. Are most people there for medical school or the general university? A lot of medical school. Yeah. A lot of people are there for medical school. 
Um, some people are just there because they think it's a great community. Yeah. Um, and there's kind of this active project going on in the Kabanian community to basically uh, sort of re-establish Shkunat Gimel and make it into a nicer place. Shkunat Gimel is a little bit, um, a little bit uh, worse for wear, you could say. Okay. But they're basically trying to make it into, you know, kind of a uh, much more livable, happy, fantastic place, which right. they're succeeding at. The, the school is doing much better. You know, generally the community is improving. Like, you know, people want to come more. Yeah. So I, I think that individuals can accomplish quite a bit. The South, it's uh, getting there. So we are connected on LinkedIn. And I've noticed that you've been outspoken a bit about the current judicial reforms. Probably won't have too much time to get too into it. But me personally, I usually don't like getting on fights on the internet. So, A, what are your thoughts on the judicial reform? I guess specifically how it affects investors. A lot of talk about the economy now and you are running a startup. And uh, I guess what, what do you see the need in essentially pushing in an opinion on LinkedIn? Okay. So why, why to post on social media? Yeah. I think the, the, what, what prompted me to post, post on social media is because I'm a very big believer in the concept of freedom of speech right. and that people should be able to express their opinions. Yeah. And ultimately, I also believe that a lot of times people are silent about opinions because they don't feel like anybody is necessarily supporting said same opinion. Right. So it's a way of basically, you know, giving people the space and breath, you know, sort of breath with a D yeah. to be able to talk about what they feel. Yeah. And... So this particular thing, there is a lot of pressure in terms of in terms of judicial reforms. I don't necessarily have. I'm going to be honest. I don't necessarily have the most nuanced opinion about it. Yeah. I have done some research, but it's not like this is you know my doctorate or anything. Yeah. That being said, there is one opinion being pushed, which at its face is completely ridiculous. Right, and specifically being pushed in the high tech world. Exactly. There's there's this opinion that like democracy is about to die. And that it's the end of the world, what's happening. And it really is sort of, it feels very Armageddon-y. Yeah. First of all, the roots of where they're getting this messaging from is from the U.S. Okay. Because they, the same messaging was used, like, also before Biden's administration. It's, it's sort of a tactic now where you say democracy is dying. And basically that's sort of a, a, a key word that we, we are unhappy with whatever is happening. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily mean democracy is dying, because if you were to think about it, first of all, this is my number one question. Well, before 1992, there were no basic laws. Was there no democracy then? Right. So, you know, there are basic questions to ask here that really, really kind of throw this into not such a positive light. Yeah. And I don't necessarily agree with what's happening. I don't honestly really have an opinion on what's happening. What I do disagree with is the radical the radical language being used because it's very divisive. Right. You I, want more nuance in the conversation. Absolutely. I yeah. think that people should just talk about things. If we were to have a real conversation about this, because the, there's been a, a subsector of, of the community in Israel, by and large sort of the religious uh, Zionist community, that's been very, very proactive for the past 20 years about yeah. About judicial reform. This for, isn't something new. For, for the listeners, I'll try to summarize it briefly. Um, as Joey said, there were no such thing as basic laws. Everything was kind of uh, majority rule. In the 90s, there was a Supreme Court Justice, Aaron Barak, who decided that basic laws are uh, henceforth a, a constitution and they can get rid of other laws based off that. And he used a basic law that was passed with a minor- that a minority of the Knesset voted on. And since then, the Supreme Court has played essentially an outsized role in Israeli 
law, and they also have a veto power to appoint Israeli judges, which causes kind of a homogene homogeneity in the political leanings of Israeli judges. The current judicial reforms, while Joey said, I also agree, they're a bit too extreme, expect specifically the 61 override clause, I think, um, are trying to create more diversity in the judges, although some might argue that the way they're doing it is also a bit extreme. And yeah, so the reforms might overall be good, and it should be noted. Um, but the way that a lot of people disagree specifically in the way they're trying to push it, which is very fast, very hard without compromise is a different question. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do. I do think I definitely think that, you know, timing is always something interesting. Yeah. Um, there are parts of the timing that make me very uncomfortable. Yeah. Like the whole stuff with Arya Derry, that guy's literally a criminal. Yeah. Now, what's interesting, though, and again, this is, I, I think it's because, I think it's important to show sort of contradictions because then it really shows, like, ultimately that people are not necessarily coming from the place that you expect them to be. Right. So people have a really big problem with Arya Derry, and they should. But the same people, if you were to ask them about Brazil, Brazil, I know it's random, yeah. but there's there was a big, big controversy over this guy named Lula and Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro was very right-wing. Lula was very left-wing. Okay? Lula had the exact same one-to-one situation as Arya Derry. He had financial crimes. He was barred from office. And then on a technicality, they were letting him back in. Yeah. But a lot of these people were really, really... A lot of the same people, if you were to ask them about Brazilian politics and what they think of that, when you change the colors of the flag... You know, when you say it's left instead of right, so then it becomes very, very, very comfortable right. for them, which I think is really problematic. I'm actually, I'm, I'm sort of a, a fan of throwing away monikers in general. Yeah. I don't think there should be a concept of left, right, you know, middle. I think that people should talk about opinions and talk about facts on the ground and try to improve things, you know, on a, on a sort of like mission oriented focus. Yeah. That's that's ultimately the argument that I'm making is that we should we should try to be more unified and try to build bridges instead of trying right. to build dis- distinctions. I'd love to discuss this more, but this podcast is on a time limit. I'll try to link some uh, more information in the description. And if you want to hear more, please email us at olimtothescene at gmail.com. Um, I usually like to end my interviews with some rapid fire questions. Um, Israel, great place. Sometimes it's a little hot. If you could geographically move Israel to one other place in the whole world, where would it be? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think that North America weather is very nice. You like the diversity. I like that. I like the eco diversity. Yeah. Um, favorite Israeli song. We like to expose our listeners to some Israeli culture. Oh, I love Idan Reichel. Uh, you know, sort of at first, at first uh, thought, Chaim Pshutim, beautiful song. Okay. Love it. Um, you have said your interest in supply chains. Recently, we've been exposed to a lot of different supply chain fiascos. What's your favorite supply chain fiasco? I think that, I mean, there's only one that, that we should think about at all. No toilet paper? No toilet paper. It's a paper. disaster. <laughs> all right. Um, be a man. Use your hands. Uh, <laughs> Joseph Rubenstein, it's been great to have you on. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Olim to the Scene. Recording and music are done by me, Martin Goldman. Editing and setup by Penny Silver. If you would like to be interviewed, please reach out to us by the email in the description, olimtothescene at gmail.com. Until next time.